Our speaker today is author and magazine editor Stephen Long. A native of Syracuse, New York, Mr. Long was awarded bachelor's and master's degrees in English from St. Bonaventure University. Originally trained as a journalist and writer, he developed expertise in forestry, silviculture, conservation policy, and natural history of New England after moving to Vermont in 1989. He founded the magazine Vermont Woodlands in 1994, which quickly grew and became Northern Woodlands, expanding to cover New England and New York. In 2011, Mr. Long left Northern Woodlands to pursue his own research and writing when he was awarded the Charles Bullard Fellowship at Harvard Forest. During his fellowship, Mr. Long began the research that turned into 38, The Hurricane That Transformed New England, the book we're going to hear about today. Mr. Long is also the author of More Than a Woodlot, Getting the Most from Your Family Forest, and he lives in Corinth, Vermont, where he owns and manages 95 acres of forest land, which had been blown down by the hurricane of 38. This afternoon, Mr. Long will share excerpts from his book, which is the first to investigate how the Hurricane of 38 affected social and ecological changes in New England that can still be observed today. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Long to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you so much. This uh, audience gives, gives uh, credence to the thought that everybody loves a good disaster. <laughs> just if, if I could, if I could just have a show of hands of people who lived through the 38 hurricane. Wow. Oh, that's great. So we're, we'll have a question and answer period and it's possible that you'll be able to tell us a bit about your experience or or if you folks who saw you raise your hand, you please uh, talk to these folks. It was an amazing event, and they, people who lived through it have never, ever forgotten it. So um, we are just sort of on the cusp of hurricane season. Uh, it takes a warm ocean for hurricanes to kick in, and um, so we're um, We'll be looking at weather maps like this before too long. And the situation is very, very different today from what it was in 1938. Today we, uh, you know, we have our, our smartphones and we can look at any, any uh, um, computer AccuWeather and telecast. There's all sorts of opportunities to know exactly what's going to happen in the next hour. Um, in 1938, there was no such thing. And so the 38 hurricane arrived utterly unexpected. Nobody knew that this was coming. Um, it was uh, a phenomenal event, and no one had any, any, any way of preparing for it. Um, so the... Um, there's a couple reasons for that. One being that, that there was no one living in New England at that time who had ever experienced a Category 2 hurricane. That's just amazing to us because we've all experienced all sorts of hurricanes, remnants of hurricanes. There have been Category 1, Category 2 hurricanes. 
and we um, we're we're accustomed to it. But in 1938, no one no one knew that was no one. They they thought that hurricanes happened down south. They thought hurricanes were were a phenomenon of uh, Florida, the Gulf Coast, the Carolinas, Hatteras. So the next day, this headline, hurricane dead, 275. This is a preliminary because ultimately there was about 600 people who died, uh, many of them in Rhode Island. About 400 people died in Rhode Island. And so the, um, the Globe, in its lead story, said something to the effect, I don't have the exact quote, um, but it was um, uh, a hurricane of immense destruction hit New England for the first time in history yesterday. And it, it, it's just phenomenal for us to think of that today because we, we are used to it. So there had, in fact, been preceding hurricanes of that, that scope. Um, in 1635 and 1815. Um, and the 1815 hurricane affected inland, um, inland New England, northern New England, in a way that um, hadn't happened with the 1635. So these are the storm tracks of the only three um, category two hurricanes to hit interior New England. The coast gets hit more more often always has but but I'm talking about something that would have gotten into uh, you know Springfield Mass anywhere into Vermont New Hampshire the track that the hurricane took um, is um, it, it started out as a track that people would expect um, coming um, from the uh, from the east from the coast of Africa heading west toward toward uh, the Gulf, toward Florida. And there had been a terrible, terrible hurricane that hit Florida in 1935. And so the Weather Service was very, very um, uh, wary of this storm. They thought that it was going to be um, a, a terrible storm for Florida. And so they managed to scare everyone so, so completely that there were no ships at sea. Um, the only information that people had at that time about where a hurricane was located came from radio contact with ships at sea. And so they would say, you know, we have such and such barometric pressure, we have winds from the southeast, and based on that, people could put it together where this, where this huge low-pressure system was. Because they had had made such uh, a big deal of this of the potential for this storm, they 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 tied their hands by they, they lost contact with all of these possible sources of information, and so they heard or, or they knew that the storm had turned as they often do, um, and this this slide shows you the red line shows you the sort of a standard hurricane track. It recurves and goes out, um, out over the ocean, and we get remnant effects of it. Um, and so this is what weather forecasters thought was going to happen with a 38 hurricane. They just were, were quite certain that it had recurved and gone out over the ocean. There's a, a sort of a, 
semi-permanent high-pressure system called the Bermuda High, and it um, it is sort of the center of of that that half circle, um, and so a storm cannot go into that high-pressure system, so it curves around it. So what happened in 1938 was that that high-pressure system was much, much farther north. So the high-pressure system extended all the way up into here, and so there was no way for that, that storm to recurve. So instead, it went due north. And so it was, it was traveling at um, 50 miles an hour, which is very, very fast for a hurricane. Um, when, when Hurricane Irene arrived in Vermont, was really devastated by Irene in, in 2011, and then there was Sandy in 2012, those were um, very, very powerful storms, but they were moving very, very slowly. And so consequently, um, by the time they hit land, their, their power was easily diminished. But the 38 hurricane was going at 50 miles an hour, and consequently, it managed to maintain its 100 mile an hour winds all the way up through Vermont and New Hampshire. So here's a few pictures of, of the devastation. These are, uh, that's the coast, sort of typical picture of trees down across streets. Um, so it was a 90-mile swath through New England. Cities and towns all had their streets blocked. Um, there were, um, uh, you know, trees on houses. There were boats inland. There were houses that, that were washed into the sea. That's where most of the people died um, when, when whole communities on Long Island and Rhode Island um, were sucked out to sea. So it was a storm surge that really was, was the devastation to human life. Um, this is a photo of um, the uh, uh, northern, the eastern states exposition in Springfield, Mass. So it's the, the big E. So this is the big state fair for New England. All of the states have buildings here in Springfield, Mass for the big state fair. That was going on um, as, it, as, it, as it was that, that week. And it had rained tremendously before. So this is another interesting part of the, the hurricane of 38, was that if the, if the hurricane had never arrived, this, this event would have been known as the flood of 1938, because it had rained for three or four days beforehand. It had been a very, very rainy summer. And so, and the three or four days before had dumped three, four, five, eight inches of rain. And so, so rivers were swollen. And this was an entirely different system. This was a low pressure system that come, that came across from, uh, across the continent, just like most of our weather systems do. And so this, this weather system was in place, just sort of finishing up. And, and so the, the Eastern States Expo had, had weathered this terrible week's worth of, of rain. It was, the place was just mired in mud and it was, you know, just, just a disaster already. And then you have 100 mile an hour winds come and this 
the storm came on top and it just compounded all of the all of the devastation. So when we had Irene um, and Sandy, these were essentially flood events. They were a lot of rain, not much wind. So all the damage was done from, from high water. Um, you can see the Ferris wheels in the background, see the various uh, tents and buildings down. So the damage at the time was estimated to be 300 million and adjusted to today's dollars, it would be $5 billion to replace or repair what was lost. Um, forecasts of if it were to happen today um, compound that and people are assuming that it would be more like 40 or 50 billion if something of that same power, same path, a replica of 38 if it happened today. And, and the reason for it being increased damage um, would be because there are many, many more people living in this area. There's twice as many people. There were eight, 8 million people within the footprint of it, and now there are 17 million. So we have, um, and, and also it's an increase in, in the, the wealth in the areas that, that, that are hit. Um, so this was 1938, end of the Depression, people still struggling. So, so um, it was um, one other little related fact there that, that this was before the time when, when homeowners insurance was a very common and, and necessary um, element. And so most of the losses were uninsured. So all of those photos showing houses uh, with, with trees in, in, on top of them, all that damage was essentially um, uninsured. And so end of the depression, um, just one more, one more kick in the teeth to people who were really down. So we also had some celebrity um, action in this hurricane. This is Catherine Hepburn, who's um, whose house in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, um, right at the mouth of the Connecticut River, was, um, was torn apart. And she's sitting out there in the remnants of her bathroom on the, the, a, a, couple days, a couple days later. So, um, so much of what's been written about the storm has been about what happened in the coastal areas, in the urban areas. And what I wanted to do is talk about the forests. And so I'm going to start in on, on what's, what happened in the forest. So 2.6 billion board feet were down. That's a number that no one will be able to you know, get, get a grasp on. So it, um, this, this is a very standard truck, uh, log truck. It carries 6,000 board feet of logs. So if you look at that and say, okay, that's 6,000 board feet. So if there were, so, so 430,000 of these trucks would, it would take to hold the wood that had been blown down in the 38 hurricane. And those trucks would stretch from Boston to Seattle and back again. So something like 4,800 miles of log trucks to contain all of the, all of the wood that was down. 600,000 acres were flattened. It looked 
like this. This is pine. In, in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, mostly what went down was pine. Um, in, uh, in Vermont and in Connecticut, there was more of a hardwood component, and that has to do with um, the land use history, um, which I'll get into a little bit later. Uprooted trees everywhere. Um, a lot of um, what you see in this one, some trees left standing, some and some snapped off, but almost entirely uprooted. Um, and there's a, a domino effect that happens that once a tree starts going, um, it will it will knock down adjacent trees. And um, pine is particularly shallow rooted, and so and it grows really tall and has a big crown, and so it acts as a sail. And so the sail catches and uh, and it can't withstand the force and it and it uproots like like that so um that sort of you see so a lot of uh, a, a lot of us are familiar with the term root ball and you know when we plant a tree we think about a root ball well this shows you that root systems are not necessarily like a ball they're more like a plate it's a big flat surface and it extends out they're not very very deep um, and this is not particular to pine, um, but pine is 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 a bit more shallow rooted. But you see that it's just really a big, big plate of of roots that get ripped out of the ground. So in Vermont, as, as I was suggesting, there was more of a hardwood phenomenon. Um, this is a sugar house and a sugar orchard. Um, so this was for making maple syrup, and um, it was uh, this was fairly close to our place in in Vermont, and um, in Vermont at the time um, there was still still a lot of farming. Uh, Vermont was about 50% open at that point, whereas Massachusetts and New Hampshire had abandoned farming as as uh, a way of life long enough before that forests had taken over all of that land. And so the abandonment of farms starting around 1880 meant that you had all of these forests that were full of trees, and the trees often were pine. Pine is a great tree for colonizing uh, open fields. And so when, when you stop haying a field and you, and you take the cows off the field, then pine will seed in. And after 30, 35 years, you have a pine forest and, and pine grows really, really fast. So, um, and, then, and then so Vermont, um, we had all of these sugar orchards up on ridges um, that were very vulnerable to to a southeast wind, which is what what the wind was. So um, the destruction around the 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 uh, region was different, based on a few different things. The position vis-a-vis -vis the the track of the storm, um, it was um, uh, 
more damage on to the east of the storm. Um, aspect and slope, it means um, on a hill, a hill that was facing south or east was more prone to, to the wind coming from the southeast. If you were on the north or the, or the west, you were in the lee of the storm. History of land use, just a little bit that I just gave you on, on the fact that some places farming was still going on and consequently um, there was more open land, land uh, less land vulnerable. And then the, the, the size of the trees. The larger, the taller trees have much more of, uh, of the sail for the wind to, to collect and knock over. So um, once pine reached 30 years or so, pine was vulnerable. Hardwood um, doesn't grow as fast, and so for hardwood trees to be vulnerable, they would have probably had to have been more like 50 or 60 years old in order to be tall enough to be, to be vulnerable. So this is um, a, a graphic of the, um, the towns that had the most uh, um, uh, destruction. So the most trees blown down were in the red, the red towns. So all of these shapes are, are town by town, uh, followed by the, the rusty or the, the orange color, um, the, the next. And so you see there's a great concentration of this in northern Mass and into New Hampshire. Northern Mass, north central Mass was affected the most. And so this shows the storm track there, and you see that all of the damage was to the east of that track. And the reason for that is that um, the wind is, is cyclonic in a hurricane. The wind is going counterclockwise. And so it is, it's, it's rotating. Um, so on the east side of this, this storm track, the wind is rotating from the south, and that's why it was most of the wind was from the southeast. So if you just picture this circle, um, just continuing up through New England along that track. And so the track, it's going 50 miles an hour, so if it was just straight wind, the wind would have been 50 miles an hour. But you add the cyclone to it, and the wind on the east side is 50, add, add 50 miles an hour to it. On the west side, you more or less subtract 50 miles an hour, and it cancels each other out. So on the west, it was essentially a rain event, a flood event. But on the east, you get the combination of the, the cyclone and the forward speed to make 100-mile-an-hour uh, winds. So um, the highest wind uh, um, measured during the, the hurricane happened very close to here in Milton. And so the Blue Hill Observatory there, weather station, um, measured 186-mile-an-hour winds. And uh, I mean, it's just phenomenal to think of what that could be. And part of that is the topography there, is that you just have this sort of this sole hill in the middle of what's pretty flat otherwise. And so, so hills like that are really, really vulnerable. The wind comes 
up the slope of the hill and and the top of the hill is just really really vulnerable so here's you know just a sense of the topography that that and the and the land use that you can think of the variations that would happen um, because of that um, so you know you've got this relatively flat land this is Connecticut relatively flat land farmland still um, and you know with some fence rows those fence rows are, are not terribly vulnerable because those trees have grown with wind so they've experienced wind from the moment they they seeded in and so they have pretty strong root systems much more so than a forest system where the trees rely on each other to keep them up upright and so there's a, a great um, uh, the, the companionship of trees in a in a forest um, they they help each other out um, in a way that that if you're on the fence line you don't need to and so um, so on the the left hand side this is a, a hill near our house and um, we're looking at um, this this is the north face and so this 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 face had almost no damage. It's very, very steep, you can see. It's very steep, but on the back side of that, that opened to the southeast. And so that side was flattened. So, so this, just go, there you are at the peak of the hill, start walking downhill on the other side, and you see signs of the hurricane everywhere. So, the Forest Service um, was was very young at the time. The Forest Service is only uh, in existence since 19 uh, the early 1900s. The Forest Chief at the time was was Gus Silcox, and um, he um, uh, delegated the responsibility for trying to. Um, uh, help with the cleanup of this event um, uh, by delegating to this fellow Ted Tinker um, and uh, so in the book I talk quite a bit about these two fellows one the idealist uh, Gus Silcox um, and the pragmatist Ted Tinker and um, so they they set up uh, um, Tinker set up his operation at the um, the hotel, um, the Bellevue Hotel, does that still exist in Boston? Yeah, it's the oh, <laughs> oh, that's great. The Bell, okay. So that was the that was the the headquarters of the of the uh, New England Forest Emergency Program. Um, oh, that's great to know. I I. I I had no idea. Um, so um, I'm going to read just a little bit from from this section, so you can get just a sense of um, just a sense of it. Um, for, forestry officials differed on how great and how how imminent a fire threat they faced. Okay, a little preface. So you've got. 600,000 acres, a lot of it pine, on the ground, 
people were really, really worried that all of this could catch on fire. Okay. Forestry officials differed on how great and how imminent a fire threat they faced. Austin Hawes was one of the many early graduates of the Yale Forestry School who filled important forestry positions at very tender ages, taking the position as state forester in Connecticut the year after his 1903 graduation. He served two ter terms in Connecticut, sandwiched around a dozen years in the same position in Vermont. By 1938, he'd been the man in charge for nearly 35 years, a seasoned leader full of experience with forestry and with fire. Looking back at the hurricane response in his 1957 book, The History of Connecticut Forests, he reported on a meeting held in Boston two weeks after the hurricane. Also in attendance was Ward Shepard, who had been appointed director of Harvard Forest following the sudden death of founder Richard Fisher in 1934. Hawes didn't bother with diplomacy in his assessment of Shepard's qualifications for the role. There could hardly have been a worse appointment. Mr. Shepard knew nothing about forestry in New England and it had little training in silviculture. The hurricane destroyed the magnificent pine forest of the Harvard Forest, and Director Shepard was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Not realizing the difficulty of burning green timber, he conceived the idea that all of New England was in immediate danger of conflagration and rushed to Boston to get the governor of Massachusetts to take immediate action. Shepard was a Harvard Forest alum whose primary on-the-ground forestry work was in the high desert forests of New Mexico and Arizona. More recently, he had worked in Washington, D.C. as a policy analyst and a public relations officer for the Forest Service and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. These positions meant that Shepard had the ear of national officials, and he wanted their immediate assistance. Hawes reports, the dramatic point in this conference was reached when John Foster, state forester of New Hampshire, stated in his calm way that he did not consider that there was any danger of immediate conflagration so long as the timber was green. Mr. Ward Shepard became so red in the face and so outraged I thought he would burst a blood vessel. He was indignant that a forester should make such a statement. Some foresters, proudly calling themselves dirt foresters, have mud on their boots and tree-marking paint on their vests and trousers. Others are marked only by ink and paper cuts. <laughs> Shepard was the latter. Hawes's description of Shepard's agitated state is fleshed out by a story in Harvard's student newspaper, The Crimson, in which the Harvard Forest Director fed the writer some brimstone. The fires that are likely to result from the accumulation of these huge piles of tinder will be of a spectacular variety, which has never been seen in this part of the country, usually being confined to the great timber stands of the West Coast, he said. They will be of the type known as crown fires, where the flames shoot to a height of 500 feet, 
creating a mighty draft which throws burning brands half a mile ahead of the main blaze and makes it absolutely uncontrollable. The article concluded with a dire forecast for public safety. Whether this area can be saved, even with the strictest precautions, uh, uh, even with the strictest precautions observed, seems doubtful to Shepherd. And while planning for the safety of Peter Sam's 700 inhabitants, he more or less expects the town to be leveled to the ground, along with an inestimable, inestimable part of the surrounding country. So, so there is this this great fear of fire, and um, and Gus Silcox, the Forest Service chief had um, served out west in Montana in the worst fire that had ever hit um, the United States. And that was in 1910, it was called the Big Burn. And so Gus Silcox was a young forester. And so he, he really, really believed in the, the power uh, and the danger of forests. So when it was presented to him that we needed to clean this mess up, he was on board. So this is what they did. So these trees were stripped of every little bit that was flammable. Um, this is a CCC crew. Um, there was um, the CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps, and the Works Progress Administration were New Deal programs that were um, handily in place at the time. Um, so they would strip the, the trees of anything flammable. Here's another one. Um, the WPA um, had a reputation of being a, a bit of a make-work program where you'd have four or five guys sitting around and, and uh, not getting a heck of a lot done. And you sort of look at this, this truck and these guys and guys pointing and this and that. And this is sort of, I think, people's notion of what the WPA was, um, as opposed to the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was, which was essentially a, um, uh, almost a paramilitary organization. It was run by the Army, and these were young bucks in their 20s. They were just ready to go out and, and, and tackle any problem that, that came along. So. The work of the 16,000 WPA men and the 5,500 CCC, along with some Forest Service camps, um, they, they, here's just the, you know, the, the miles, 10,000 miles of trails and roads cleared, um, 458 miles to fire towers. So we had about 300 fire towers in the, uh, in the New England region at the time. And the, they, they communicated by phone lines. And so, so the phone lines were all down from, to and from those, the, uh, fire towers. And there was, um, the roads were all all covered with trees, and so these these fire towers were of absolute no no use at this point, and so they they cleared that, um, they reconnected phone lines. Five essentially five million man days uh, expended. So so this was um, uh, the WPA 
um, it was it was more of a political organization. So that I, I think that it's the truth is somewhere in the middle there. That I think that they that they accomplished quite a lot, um, and um, but they they were supervised locally. Um, this was sort of a this, these were county programs, and so. So the counties would, would anybody, any family who needed relief, they could send one person uh, to the WPA. And so, um, so I think that they, they did do uh, quite a bit of, of, of good work um, and, um, and probably don't deserve the derision that they sometimes had heaped on them. So, so there's a, the cleanup was a twofold program. It was the fire, uh, the fire danger, reducing the risk of fire danger, but there was also all of these logs. So you saw that they were clearing all the brush off of the logs. And so we, so we had all of these landowners who owned woods um, who had been holding on to those woods because the the price for timber in the depression was was terrible because the industry had just really really diminished and so but the beauty of owning woods is that you don't have to cut it at any particular time but you can wait until things are valuable and then you can you can cut and so um, so unfortunately in this case what happened was that suddenly um, five times the amount of the annual harvest was on the ground knocked down in a four or five hour period. And so because of that, if the government had not stepped in, there would have been absolutely no market for that wood because the, it, who would pay for wood that, I mean, it was everywhere. And you could just, um, it, it was essentially free. People would pay you to get rid of it, pay, would pay you to clean up their woods. And so the government s said that they would buy any logs that landowners would develop. Another thing to think about is that all of the woods between here and Burlington, Vermont, very, very little of it is publicly owned. It's almost all privately owned. The Northeast has very, very little public land. And so, so, it was it was thirty thousand individual landowners whose woods wood, wood was on the ground and who had been devastated by this. So, um, this is a logging crew um, that was, uh, and this is the logging technology of the time. You know, this they a crawler tractor. They use horses and and oxen to get get to get the logs out to a trail and then a. a, a, a a crawler tractor like this would would uh, they would load them onto onto it with these PVs and then truck it to the sawmill and then so here is a picture of a sawmill from uh, the decade before this was a 1927 photo but the sawmills at that time were sort of known as as portable mills and today there is a phenomenon of portable mill that you can pull behind a truck or a tractor and set it up in a in a day but at that time, these portable mills, I mean, picture this, that, you know, they would move this into a new lot, but it would take a week or more to set this up, to truck it all in. And I mean, you're putting a building together and putting together a big operation. Another, another smaller uh, portable mill. 
um, from the Harvard Forest. But so you look around that, so you've got the, the lumber stacked there and, um, and just look at the, at the trees, um, that in the background. I mean, that's the landscape that, that they were dealing with. Um, I want to go back to, um, this photo in the pond. So because pine, um, uh, can, um, stain, um, and have um, insect damage really, really quickly. Wh what they did with as much of the pine as they could was to put it in ponds. And so there were 600 sites where logs were delivered and where the federal government would buy them. And um, almost half of them were in ponds. And so Today, you can some of these ponds that um, they still have logs that surface. I mean, they they felt comfortable putting white pine in the ponds because white pine floats, and 98% of it did float and was pulled out. But something like 2% of the of the white pine logs um, remained in in ponds, and so you'll still see some of these these today. So um, one other thing I wanted just to mention um, is that back then um, they, the sawmills sawed wood in what's called um, round-edged, and so they did not um, they did not make it four square edges. So you see this this whole yard filled with with trees and basically what they do it's it's sort of like if you were to just put an egg into an egg slicer well that's how the saw sawed these logs they didn't finish the edges so it's called live edge or or round edge and so um, so this was a New England phenomenon and it was because of the box board industry so in the 30s um, and on into the 40s most of um, anything that was packaged was was packaged in wood. This is before cardboard and plastic, um, and so so pine being light was a fantastic uh, wood to make boxes out of. And so the New England Box Company um, was a huge company. This I think was one of their lots. And so you, you would saw it, and you could use almost any of the wood because you would be sawing it into small pieces, you know, a box this long, and, you know, you got something like this. You don't need long pieces of wood. And so you can just cut around the, the knots, and you have, um, you, can, you can use so, so much of the, uh, um, of the tree. So that was the, 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 uh, um, tradition at the time, the Forest Service had no interest in doing it that way. And so what they wanted was they wanted it all sawn square-edged. And so this was um, a big point of contention um, and people referred to um, the way that they measured it with this what's called a, a Biltmore stick. They referred to that as the swindle stick. And and everyone considered that they were being swindled um, because they were not being paid based on on what um, on the way that they had been accustomed to it. So I want to just move on to some pictures of the forest today. Um, and this is a, 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 
a photo from um, Harvard Forest's holdings in the Pisgah State Forest. This is one place where there was no salvage in after 1938. And so this is what a forest would look like if it had not been salvaged. So that's a pine, a huge pine, and that is still intact um, after almost uh, 80 years. So they have done cores, they take, they drill into these trees, and they're essentially still intact. They're rotting from the edges in, um, from, you know, the, the root ball in and where, it, where it's touching the ground. But you could walk across that, that tree today and it's just absolutely sound. Um, so, so we have these phenomenons, this phenomenon of places that were not salvaged. Most, most was salvaged. And so here's um, another look at what we would have today. And, um, and a lot of, so this is, uh, uh, this clump phenomenon is um, sprouted. Uh, this, these are maples, but maples, uh, ash, um, oak would all sprout from, uh, from the salvage operation. So the, um, so you cut a tree at the stump and then that it will sprout. And so it, it works from that same root system of the original tree and has a head start on trees that are seeding in around it. So that's a phenomenon that you'll see in many places. And then this is, this, this is our woods in Corinth, Vermont. Um, sugar maple um, and ash mostly. Um, and so I've been asked many times, how did I get interested in, in this subject? And, and, and this is the reason I got interested in it. We bought our land in 1988, 50 years after the hurricane. I was told that it had blown down in the 38 hurricane. And I thought, really, how could it possibly have been blown down and be this essentially a mature forest 50 years later? The trees were about, you know, diameter like that, 14 inches, maybe 12, 14 inches. And so um, I needed to understand how, how that would have happened. And so that was the, the cause of my, my exploration. And um, just to see, you know, what is the power of the, the forest ecology that, that allows it to respond in, in such a way that 50 years after a cataclysmic disaster, you have something like this. And so the, the book is largely about that. Um, just one last um, look at, so this is, this is a, a cross section of a tree that we cut on our land in, uh, uh, I think it was uh, 2011. And um, I just want to show you what happens to trees that survive the hurricane, because a lot of trees did. The large trees got blown down, and the smaller trees um, uh, were, were left standing, and suddenly they have all sorts of sunlight. And so here, um, so this is how big that tree was in 1938, that line right there. So it was about a, a, a 
what did I say? I think this is about a two and a half inch diameter tree. So suddenly, look at, I hope you can see the size of the growth rings there. So here, so this tree was from um, uh, 1890. So it had taken 1890, 48 years to grow that much. That's it. So that tree was uh, two and a half inch diameter and was, was uh, 48 years old. And now, so here's these numbers here show decades. So from 1940 to 50, it grew that much to 1960, 70, 80, 90, 2000, 2010. And um, so, and then this just shows the, the diameter growth of it. Um, and it, it's just phenomenal what happens when a tree gets released from, um, from an overstory that is, has been holding it down. And sugar maple in particular is really remarkable for being able to be suppressed for all that time and then take advantage of this flood of sunlight. And so nature has a way of really uh, uh, making, uh, restoring a forest and, and there are winners and losers in, in a huge event like the 38 hurricane. So all of those trees that 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 were were leveled created an environment for this new forest and so and the new forest has taken off and it it is covering um, just as much ground as it was if and, and in Vermont considerably more 80 percent of Vermont is now forested as opposed to the 50 at the time that that the hurricane came so that's what I have for you today